Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. My name is Josh. Thank you for joining me tonight on Brighter Evening. Tonight, we're going to talk about voting districts. Now, I think most people are aware of the idea of voting districts. Voting districts are geographic areas where you get a specific set of candidates. And there's various reasons for this. Um, in some places, representation is based on geography. So um, this would be common in, for example, the United States, where when you vote for a representative in Congress, that representative in Congress uh, represents a geographic region. There are other countries where this is done proportionally. So 15% of the vote went for a particular party. That party will get 15% representation in the legislature. Uh, the other reason that that we have voting districts is for local offices. So, for example, if you're voting for a mayor, only people who live in that city should be able to vote for the mayor. And um, the idea of breaking up voting districts is about as old as as voting itself. Um, you know, there's this, there's always questions about who can vote and where they vote and that kind of stuff. Um, and when districts are selected, it is a chance for the politicians and people in power to change things. Whoever gets to choose the voting uh, district, the voting layout, who gets to vote, has a, a fairly large impact on the outcome of the votes themselves. So um, redistricting is an old practice. Um, in the United States, it goes back to the founding, and the Constitution it says that redistricting happens every 10 years. Um, but there's this idea of gerrymandering, right? So we're all okay with the idea that uh, districts being adjusted based on population, right? That's that's how we're able to keep somewhat of a balance of power between um, the different voters, right? So a large state gets more seats, so they have a larger say because they have more population, and the average power of votes uh, should be about equal. Now, be, because of some quirks in our system and, and the really big difference in size in the United States between large states and small states, that balance isn't always great. Um, it's not always particularly even between a state like California and a state like Vermont. But the, the uh, intent there is reasonable, and the system in general around that is reasonable. Gerrymandering is a practice that is also very old. Um, the name gerrymandering gerrymandering comes from this uh, guy he, his name was Elbridge Jerry he was the governor of Massachusetts and he set up some really partisan districts this goes all the way back to 1812 so think War of 1812 time frame right? the country is very young um, and the, the name comes from Jerry his last name and um, this mythical salamander that they said that they, he'd set up the vote district, uh, voting districts to look like or a particular voting district so he's taking the, the shape and making it really funny. Um, now, why do, we, why do we worry about this? Why do people gerrymander in the first place? And they do it for one of two reasons. They either want to concentrate political power or disrupt political power. And that could be of any kind of group. Uh, it could be purely partisan. You're, you're in one party, you don't want this other party to be in power, or you want your party to be in power, and maybe you want to split the other party between two parties. We talked about um, the different voting systems. We talked about how, some of the ways that works vote-wise. Um, but that whole discussion was sort of assuming that it's a single 
popular vote type election. Uh, that's not really the case necessarily in, in um, say, a legislature where you start looking at a higher level and you say, well, yeah, this vote happens in the context of this system, right? First past the post or instant runoff or uh, approval voting, right? You have those that context for the individual vote, but when you move up a level and you start looking at the balance of power within the legislature, it's also very influenced by gerrymandering, the way the districts are drawn. So um, this has historically been used for all sorts of things, right? Uh, it's been used to suppress minority votes, to concentrate minority votes. It's been used to move one party or the other into political power. It happens in all kinds of ways. Um, but there's a really interesting quote. So there's a man named Robert Hoffeller, and uh, he, he has two quotes that are out there, and I've linked these in the show notes. One is, he said, I define redistricting as the only legalized form of vote stealing left in the United States today. He also said this one, which is a more famous quote, redistricting is like an election in reverse. It's a great event. Usually the voters get to pick the politicians. In redistricting, the politicians get to pick the voters. So that's a very, um, very focused view on it, right? It's, it's very focused around gerrymandering. And this is a guy who was kind of the gerrymander-in-chief for a political party. He's the one who helped draw voting districts in a way that favored the party he belonged to. Um, if you look into the, in the story of him, he was a guy that was doing this for years. He, you can go read his Wikipedia article, for example. Again, the stuff's all linked. He went out there and found ways to disadvantage groups that he didn't agree with. Uh, he found ways to make sure his party was in political power. And a lot of his um, work that he's done was found in violation of various laws. Uh, not all of it. And it, it worked uh, surprisingly well. So the way his information got out, the, the reason he's well-known, aside from some C-SPAN interviews over the years, is that when uh, he passed away, his estranged daughter came to his house and was able to get a hold of some hard drives that he had. And there had been some ongoing litigation, and she had assumed that all the information contained in these hard drives was uh, you know, already made public through these, these uh, lawsuits. But it turned out they weren't. She was going through and looking at um, family pictures and things, found some things that weren't public, and released them. And so the, we now have a greater insight into kind of how he operated. So it, it's a terrible story in a way because you, you kind of see this sort of partisanship and this very uh, cynical view of politics, the sort of us-versus-them view of politics that this wasn't a guy who was trying to make sure the best candidates win. He's trying to make sure his candidates won. He's trying to make sure that his party won in a, in a purely partisan way. Um, and I think a lot of us prefer one party over the other. We you know, maybe belong to a particular party. We typically vote a certain way. But I think all of us would say, at least on a fairly superficial level, we'd rather the better candidate win, the, the person who's going to help the country the most. And if our party has a candidate who's not the best candidate, we don't want them to win. So that that's kind of where the, the lines get drawn, right? Um, with this this whole gerrymandering thing, and it's it's a thing to get 
the party in power above and beyond the will of the individual citizens, right? It's a way to to adjust things by counting it. In, e in economic terms, it's sort of similar to rent-seeking, where you're not adding value, you're trying to structure the system in a way to benefit yourself, right? You're rigging it. Um, and I'm not claiming that any particular party is rigging the system in general, but that's the idea of gerrymandering. So there are four kind of typical ways to do gerrymandering, and these have all been used by different parties in different ways in different places. The first of these is cracking, and that basically involves um, spreading people out. So let's say that um, you want to disadvantage people with glasses, and you have a good map of where people with glasses live. Well, if you want to do that, all you do is try to find the concentrations and make sure that you draw lines through the middle of the concentrations so that different voting districts have different, you know, if you're, you're, you've got a few neighbors who are all glasses wearers, they all end up in different districts. Um, so the way that works is if you have, say, you know, 50% glasses wearers, but in your five districts, you just kind of put 20% uh, of them in each district, so you end up with one-fifth in each. You're going to have only 20% representation of glasses wearers in all those districts. So that's uh, actually, you know, a really good way to take power away from a majority, right, is cracking them up and putting them into different districts. The second way is packing, which is, uh, let's say you have, again, a very, you know, high majority or whatever, or some group that's, you know, the 40% range or 30% range. So rather than spreading them out everywhere where they could tip the vote if there's a lot of people who are kind of in the middle on a particular um, set of issues, right, in a particular region. What you do instead is you take all the people who wear glasses in this case, they're, they're really condensed in one area, so you put them all in one voting district. And that way, you've got the pro-glasses-wearing voting district, and it's going to be a very secure district. However, the non-glasses-wear districts are also now very secure. And now I know glasses-wearers don't don't actually kind of congregate in an area, but other political groups do. Um, you know, some political parties are more common in the city, some are more common in the country. Um, you might see sort of similar patterns with racial groups. Certain racial groups may be more prominent in one city or one part of a city versus other areas. And so if you're trying to, you know, block a particular political party or you're trying to, you know, dilute the vote of a particular racial group, either for you know, racist or political reasons, right? You just, you know they're not going to vote for your party, so you want to reduce their vote power. Those are ways that you can, you can do that sort of a thing. Um, hijacking, this is an, another kind of trick that you can use. So you could redistrict in a way that now, um, if you've got two incumbents in power, they have to run against each other. So let's say that Alice and Bob live... Um, maybe in adjacent neighborhoods, and so you redistrict. So now that those two neighborhoods are together, whereas before they were separate, Alice and Bob were both in power, uh, you know, say city councilman. And so now Alice and Bob are running against each other for a city council seat. If you do that, the reason that that's, uh, that's a way to kind of adjust power and, and gerrymander and stuff is because incumbency rates are very high. People tend to vote for people they voted for before. 
whether it's what they're used to, they like them, it's a known quantity, it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't, for whatever reason, um, incumbency rates are high. And I think, you know, gerrymandering, which makes these partisan districts, and first past the post, which, you know, talked about in the other episode, those probably enhance that effect. But again, this is a way that you could take some group you don't like and marginalize them, make make their power less uh, effective in voting. Uh, kidnapping is is the other one. It's the kind of flip side of hijacking. So you take a new district and you take your incumbent and you put it in it and they're covering an area they haven't covered before. So the voters in that area are not familiar with that, that candidate. Right? So those are the four common things. Cracking, packing, hijacking, kidnapping. None of them sound good. And none of them are good, right? You know, whether it's for trying to benefit your political party or because you're a racist, those are bad things to do because in a democracy, ideally, each person should have a an equal vote. Right? If you have 300 million people and 300 million votes, each one should count the same. You know, that's, that's sort of a democratic fairness ideal. In practice, that's difficult to do for a variety of reasons, but we want to we wanna be there um, approximately. Get, get, a, get in that general region. So let's talk about how some different countries are doing with it. In Australia, there is actually almost no gerrymandering. Uh, they do a great job at, at avoiding it. In Germany, they're about in the middle. There's some gerrymandering in some areas, not, not so much in others. France actually has quite a lot of gerrymandering. And of course, the United States is very complicated. There are a few states that are pretty good about it. Washington and Arizona are two examples. And I think I, I like those two examples because they tend to fall in um, different parts of the political spectrum. So it, does, it shows that this isn't a partisan thing necessarily. Um, there are some, some states that are bipartisan about their gerrymandering. I know that sounds a little strange, and I, I should probably kind of talk about the difference between bipartisan and nonpartisan. Bipartisan means that there are two parties, and the United States has typically Republicans and Democrats, and they're working together on something. Nonpartisan means that no party affiliation is associated with it, right? It's It doesn't have anything to do with party. It doesn't have to do anything with grouping. It's just we're going to make a decision based on the facts in some sense. So when we talk about bipartisan gerrymandering, at first that seems strange. Uh, the idea that Republicans, Democrats work together on anything, I think, sounds strange sometimes. But if you've got a state that's 50-50, it's in both parties' best interest to keep things stable, so they both get 50% of the vote. Um, and so you'll get this kind of bipartisan gerrymandering where you get very solidly you know, one-way districts and very solidly the other-way districts. Whereas in reality, if it was less gerrymandered, you might have some districts that are more likely to change hands based on the the mood of the voters, right? How much they like what's happened. And then, of course, there are some states in the United States that are, are pretty bad. I don't know that I have any particular examples from my research um, that I remember, but there, there definitely are some that are pretty bad. And I'd say most are probably pretty bad because there aren't a lot of states with laws dealing with ways to draw voting districts in a fair way. Typically, the default scenario is a state uh, legislature will create the voting districts. A state legislature is run by politicians, and it's an inherently political organization. So if party A is in power, party A 
you know, at the 10-year mark, right after the census, they have the opportunity to draw the voting districts in a way that benefits them. And they're going to bring in a guy like Thomas Hoffler and Hoffeller rather, and and try to get things to go their way. So why do we care about gerrymandering? Well, the first reason I think is fairness. Going back to what I was saying a minute ago, we want to be fair about votes. We want votes to count more or less evenly. Uh, I think a second part of this is we want to make sure that people feel like their votes counted. We want votes to become legitimate. If you remember my story in the episode on voting, vote counting, there is the situation at where I was working when the the boss kind of came in and there was a disagreement between the guy who had been like asked to count the votes and the boss about how to count the votes and it happened during this meeting and all of a sudden everyone kind of felt like there was some illegitimacy to this voting process because it had been changed. Um, I don't think it was solely because it had been changed, but the the way that the second place voting happened had not been communicated well up front. And so because of this, it got really crazy, right? There was some amount of illegitimacy in the voting between people not understanding how it's supposed to be counted because it shouldn't, didn't seem like a big deal to anyone going in. I don't want to fault anyone who was in there, but it became a big deal because people didn't understand it and the way it was, it had been counted changed. And in the end, it didn't actually matter, right? The, the second place option didn't mean anything to us. We weren't going with it. Um, we didn't know that at the time, but that's what ended up happening. So keeping keeping the vote legitimate, making people feel like their vote counts is incredibly important. We want, in a democracy, votes to express the will of the voter. Elections should reflect what voters think, feel, and want. Sometimes you may disagree with that. I know I often disagree with the results of elections for various reasons. Um, I've got some opinions on things. But I think it's better that the the will of people, what people want when the election happens, is reflected in the vote. Because the whole point of democracy is that we are better together than we are individually. We're able to make better decisions. You know, I've sat down and thought, you know, I know the answer to all these things. I've got the best way to do this. But there's a system of government where we take what one guy says and do all of it, and it's called the dictatorship, and we know it's not good. So... That means, by definition, you know that some of your beliefs are wrong. You just don't know which ones. And the hope is that by working with others in this democratic process, we're able to get the best information and make the best choices. So that's why we care. Fairness, people feeling like their vote count uh, vote counts and is legitimate, and that elections express the will of voters, right? We're able to get the best decisions made. So, if that's the case, we care about it, we have to know what a good voting district looks like. It needs to be compact, have simple boundaries, and not look at voter composition. Those are the three basic ways to have a good district. And I might say a third, a fourth part to that, which would be following natural boundaries in some way. So let's talk about what that means. Compact. What I mean by that is it is a standard shape, right? It's it's maybe not standard shape, but a simple shape. It's a blob that surrounds an area. It's a circle. It's some lines. You know, it, it follows uh, counties, something like that, where it's it's just square. You don't have anything that's shaped like a dog bone 
You don't have anything that's, you know, shapes and curves and snakes around. Anytime it starts to get long and skinny and big in some spots and small in others, the voting district looks a little suspect. Whether or not it is, it looks suspect. Um, simple boundaries. So if the boundaries are a river, or the boundaries just follow some some coordinate, you know, they're not going in and out, and they, you know, it's not like, well, this side of this street is on this voting district, and that side is on the other. But when you get over one more street, it goes down, and then it goes down. You know, like those sort of things. You end up with complicated boundaries. And, of course, voter composition. Voter composition is probably the easiest one to understand because we know what that means, right? We know what it means to look at voters of different types, whether it's race or political party or whatever. Um, and not looking at those when you make your decision is simple enough. If you avoid doing that, then you're going to end up with a much better outcome, right? We're, we don't look at it. We know we can't have taken it into account when making the voting district, and that means the voting district can be a more fair voting district. So there are a few ways to accomplish this, to get voting districts that look good. Um, the first is having a non-partisan voting district commission of some kind. This is what Australia does, and it's working well for them. Um, it's being done in some states in the United States, and it works well. Um, the nicest thing about this is it works within our existing political system. It's something politicians understand and people understand. There's a commission. Their job is to figure this out. Um, you give them some instructions about not looking at voter composition and some of these simple principles of, you know, we want it to be fair, compact, simple boundaries, easy to find. Um, we see that they have been effective. The hardest thing about it is finding nonpartisans could be difficult in some cases. I tend to think that most people working in a professional capacity tend to be pretty good about being professional, right? They want to they wanna do good at their job. But it can be difficult, and there's certainly a level of distrust with people that are unelected or people that are out there doing this sort of thing, perhaps having a secret agenda or something like that. You can certainly understand how that sort of sentiment and that sort of feeling could impact people and make this a potentially hot-button issue. That especially becomes the case with entrenched interests. Entrenched interests are the people who are happy with the current system, so they're going to fight about it. They're going to come out and say, well, this is a tool for the X party to usurp the power of the voter. We don't know what they're going to do. right? Those are the kind of arguments that you're going to hear because they're happy with the way things are. But it has passed, and it's, it isn't that complicated. So it's the sort of thing, if voters demanded it, if it were a popular issue, we would actually see it. Um, Nonpartisan voting districts aren't that hard. Uh, or non-partisan non uh, voting commissions, I mean. Uh, so the, the redistricting commission. But there is another approach, and this is a math-based approach. So the cool thing about a math-based approach is that it's unbiased and repeatable, right? You know what you put into it. Um, there are no entrenched interests. Well, the, there are in getting to the system, but once it's there, the system is free from political influence in the sense that 
until that system changes, it just takes the inputs, right? So you can't game it directly. Um, I'm not aware of a place that's tried a mathematical approach yet, but I think it could work. And I'll, I want to describe the system that I think would work. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some mathematical concepts here that I don't think are well known. Um, the first one is called the k-mean. Uh, and most people know what a mean is. It's this typical average you take where you go add up all the values you have and divide by the number of them that you have. That's a standard average. People work with that kind of stuff all the time. Right? And when we talk about a mean versus the median, because those are two different ones, right? The median is where you line everyone up, and the guy that's in the middle, he is the median. But if, you know, a bunch of people are really tall up at the up at the top, then they may push up the mean, they may push up that other average. So when we look at a mean, we're looking at the kind of central tendency, right? That's what an average is. But there's no reason there has to be more than one average. So if I wanted to, for example, figure out something like the McDonald's M, what the average height is, there are some places where, you know, it's kind of up at the top and some places that are at the bottom. I might find somewhere that's, I don't know, halfway up or something. But what if I could take two averages? Well, if I could take two averages, I might kind of line them up somehow with the the two different parts of those arches, right? That's that's sort of one example. Um, another version of this is called a centroid. And so with the centroid, you take the average of where people are. So in the United States, every time there's a census, the Census Bureau computes the centroid. It's sort of like if you took every person and gave them mass and said what's the center of mass it's the same idea um, if you're in a, a big city the centroid is going to be towards the more dense part of the city so the centroid is going to be probably fairly close to New York but um, close to Manhattan New York I mean but you know maybe in one of the outlying boroughs it's a little bit more dense it might move it over towards that direction um, in the United States the centroid has been moving west every time there's been a census so that kind of shows that the country has expanded west and it's grown geographically. Right? So this is another type of mean. It's a geographic mean. It's a two-dimensional mean where we say, well, we're looking where everything is, but what's kind of the middle point? And if you imagine just scattering some sand on a piece of glass and try to figure out what the middle of all those little grains of sand are, that's what the centroid's trying to figure out. And it uses some math to do it. it it's not math that's terribly difficult necessarily. Um, it's something I think anyone could really learn if you wanted to. Um, so you can make a k-mean centroid. Um, this is a centroid where instead of having a single centroid you have a whole bunch of them. Um, the way that that would work is you would you would take a look at something and say well it's not just that there's one, maybe there's six neighborhoods, and I want to kind of figure out what those six neighborhoods would be, right? And so you could kind of group things that way. What's what's the middle of each spot? Um, I learned about this in a class I took. We, we were doing uh, so this algorithm called Ransack. Um, this was a class I took when I was learning computer vision in college. 
and the ransack algorithm is one version. There's actually a few others. It's just a fast one. And what the ransack algorithm does is it lets you find multiple sort of centroids. And I was learning about this, and then I, at some point I learned about a Voronoi diagram. And I started kind of thinking about this idea of voting districts. And it turns out I'm not the first to think of this. I can't find the original web page I found years ago. I've been looking for it. But I, I have linked to some papers about this. And the idea is that you take these multiple centroids, right? This represents multiple spots where you have kind of more densely clustered people. And those are sort of the center of mass, right? Those are the center of where there's a lot of people. And a Voronoi diagram is really simple. You take a bunch of dots and you draw the lines that would be most center between those dots. So if there, if there's uh, two districts, you're going to end up with some line in the middle and then boxes kind of for the rest of it. If you have three districts, you'll have the center lines kind of be in some sort of a Y shape. Um, but if one of those centroids is off to one side, it'll it'll go that way. And so that's that's how this works, right? You take the centroid, uh, multiple centroids, right? And you draw this Voronoi diagram, and that gives you the 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 method for drawing voting districts. Um, if you're really interested, the the Voronoi diagram, the cells that get created are called tessellations. I only learned that word when I started trying to research if anyone had come up with this idea. So. The, uh, the you want to sound really smart, this is what you tell people you think should be voting district. You tell them you want it to be a k-means centroid Voronoi tessellation. Couldn't be clearer, right? <laughs> the idea is you want to figure out where the where the sort of density of people are, make, make dots there, draw the lines between the dots, and that's it. You may want to add a little bit in there to allow for following natural boundaries like major roads and rivers, but don't make it any more complicated than that. If you do that, you can have a system that's very repeatable and very simple. You can even take the output of that and give it to a nonpartisan voting commission to adjust it to fit um, those sort of geographic boundaries and verify that it's okay. But doing that, you can feed it just raw population information, just how many people live in that area, how, you know, how many people are in each house. That's really what you need. You don't need to know their race. You don't need to know their voting history. You don't need to know any of that. And with that information, you can come up with a good voting district. Now, I don't know. I don't know if this has ever been tried. I don't know how it would work, but I suspect it would create voting districts that are fair. Um, in any event, where I think we should go is moving towards a system where we don't gerrymander so much. We have models that work. I'm, I'd be happy to see those implemented. We have a mathematical model here, and I'm sure that there are others that could also work. The nice thing about this mathematical model is that you end up with a voting district that is compact, the boundaries are very simple, and we don't need to feed in voter composition. So it's by definition, at least my definition of fair, a fair voting district. If we implement that, we can get to a better situation with less gerrymandering and an electorate whose will is better able to be reflected in the people who are elected.
Ideally, this will lead to better solutions and better enfranchisement, less partisanship, a better functioning society. So I hope this has been interesting for you. Um, I'd love to dive more into the math one night uh, when I'm a little bit more energetic. This is something that's different than some of the more complicated voting systems because you don't necessarily need to understand the process. You only need to understand the output. And if the output is fair, then you can feel like it's a fair election. Thank you for joining me tonight. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brightervening.com.